Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1066 of the Juice Box Podcast. On today's show, I'll be speaking with Anna. She's a 38-year-old type 1 who's been living with type 1 diabetes since she was 19 years old. Anna wanted to come onto the show to share her experiences at work as a type 1. I don't think I'm going to tell you what she does yet, because I found out while I was talking to her. You should find out the same way. Oh, by the way, she also has Hashimoto's. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. If you want to help out the show, make sure you're subscribed and following in the audio app you're listening in right now. It really genuinely helps. An Apple podcast, hit subscribe. And Spotify, it's follow. And then set up your downloads so they come through, especially those of you who have iOS 17 now. They've changed your downloads. Go into the settings for the show and, and mark off... Uh, Download most recent five episodes. That would really help. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by US Med. USMed.com slash juicebox. Get started right now with your free benefits check at USMed.com slash Juice box or call 888-721-1514. US Med is where Arden gets her diabetes supplies, and you could too. The podcast is also sponsored today by AG1. You can drink AG1.com slash juice box. That's right, using my link to drink AG1 will get you five free travel packs and a year's supply of vitamin D with your first order at drinkag1.com slash juice box. Hi, my name is Anna. Anna, hi. I'm Scott. I've nice never done that before. Scott. I've never done that before. It's nice <laughs> to meet you as well. Isn't that odd? For a thousand times, I've never just said back to somebody, oh, I'm Scott. Um, okay. Anna, I know that you were diagnosed around 19 or 20 years old, and you're how mm -hmm. old now? 38 years old now. 38. Okay. So that was 18 years ago. Oh, you almost are at the tipping point. Like you're almost to the, I've had diabetes longer than I didn't have diabetes spot. Yeah. You're getting there. What do you think of that? Um, I feel like I'm already there because I mean, I don't, you know, you don't really remember the first few years of your life. So as much memory as I have, it's been more of my life. Oh, you're discounting zero to two. <laughs> yes. Oh, interesting. that's interesting. <laughs> you're like, listen, yeah. I can't recall a movie I saw when I was two years old. So that time doesn't count at all. <laughs> Exactly. Well, that's pretty, you know, that's true. Do you have kids? I do. Okay. So you have, so you'll understand what I'm about to say. It's such a memory in your head of your children at that age. And then you tell them something about themselves and they're just like, ah, I don't know. And it, mm -hmm. it's a weird disconnection. Like you've had this very deep, meaningful experience together that only one of you remembers. Exactly. Yeah. It's unpleasant. It's like dating my wife, who doesn't remember anything that we ever do together. <laughs> so I'll be like, you remember the time? Wasn't that nice? And she goes, what? I'm like, uh, never mind. <laughs> so uh, how many kids do you have? Uh, just one. 
just one. Four year old. You thinking of making yeah. any more or is the one good? I hope we're good with one. Good for you. I agree. Yeah. They're a lot of work. They're a lot oh, and money and uh, Yeah. Time. I do this thing. Your yours is only four. Did you say girl? I'm sorry. It's a little boy. Little He's boy. four. Yeah. Right, your little boy's four. You you don't know about this. I um as a little trick. I put my kids' education on a credit card before I pay it to get the points. So oh. if, if you're going to send somebody a massive amount of money anyway, you might as well grab some points uh, along the That's way. That's smart. Oh, I don't know if it's smart or not. But um, I haven't paid for paper towels or whatever it is I buy from Amazon in quite some time. <laughs> well, by the way, I've completely paid for it. It just hasn't felt like I've paid for it. I get to check the box off that says, use the points. And I'm like, yeah, use the points. <laughs> but it's it's just fascinating. I wonder if your son in 14 years, I wonder what people's thought about college will be at that point. If they'll be like, you have to go to college or if you want to blah, 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 or if it won't feel like that anymore. I think that's going to be interesting. I'll be uh, yeah probably still alive. I'll be able to find out. Um, uh, okay. Did you go to college? I did. And she broke up. God damn it. In Michigan. I'm from Michigan originally. Okay. Um, and then I did medical school in Michigan as well at Michigan State. Oh. And then I came out to Colorado for my uh, medical residency. Fancy. The rest of my training. You didn't, you didn't lead with, I'm Anna, I'm a doctor. That's nice. <laughs> kind of physician are you? I am. Uh, internal medicine. I am a hospitalist which means I practice internal medicine um, only in the hospital. Like I don't have a clinic that you could come in to see me. I only see you if you get sick enough to be in the hospital. Can I say something that I mean as a, um, a compliment and other people might hear differently? You're a real, sure. you're a real doctor. Not like, you know, some of those other ones, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. People you won't talk to at work. You know who I'm saying? I get it. Yeah. Who, who did you, Don't tell me the name, but you picture somebody in your head. Maybe a little bit. Okay. <laughs> so uh, how long do you have to go to school for to be a, uh, an internal medicine doctor? So it was four years of undergrad. I did a post-bac program, which is like a one-year program between undergrad and medical school. Uh, that was So that was a year. And then four years of medical school and then three years of residency. You're saying a dozen years you were in school. I was in a lot of school. Yeah, a lot of school. I didn't I didn't finish all of my training until like two weeks before I turned 30. I didn't know that sentence was going towards an age distinction. And I, <laughs> I thought you were going to be like, I didn't get it all done. But, you know, they didn't care. So, so, <laughs> so I skipped ears at the end. Crazy, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so what kind of cases do you see, generally speaking? I'm in a relationship with AG1. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by them, so I'm going to tell you that I hang out with AG1 every morning. A scoop of delicious AG1 in my shaker bottle, shake, shake, shake with some water, right down, and then we just talk for a couple minutes. Talk about the day. I don't actually do any of that. I, I mean, I, I, I do all the stuff leading up to the talk. I don't talk to the AG1, I guess is what I should say. I think about my day while I'm cleaning out the shaker. <laughs> anyway, I don't know how that came out of my mouth like that. Since 2010, AG1 has improved their formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutritional supplement possible. All that in just one scoop every day. 
I get the nutrients, the gut health support, and I cover my nutritional basis. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash juicebox. That's drinkag1.com slash juicebox. Everybody who has diabetes has diabetes supplies, but not everybody gets them from U.S. Med the way we do. usmed.com forward slash juicebox or call 888-721-1514. U.S. Med is the number one distributor for Freestyle Libre Systems nationwide. They are the number one specialty distributor for Omnipod Dash, the number one fastest growing tandem distributor nationwide, and they always provide 90 days worth of supplies and fast and free shipping. That's right, U.S. Med carries everything from insulin pumps to diabetes testing supplies right up to your latest CGMs like the Freestyle Libre 2 and 3 and the Dexcom G6 and 7. They even have Omnipod Dash and Omnipod 5. They have an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and you can reach them at 888-721-1514 or by going to my link, usmed.com forward slash juicebox. When you contact them, you get your free benefits check, and then if they take your insurance, you're off and going. And U.S. Med takes over 800 private insurers and Medicare nationwide. Better service and better care is what U.S. Med wants to provide for you. usmed.com forward slash juice box. Get your diabetes supplies the same way Arden does from U.S. Med. Links in the show notes, links at juiceboxpodcast.com to U.S. Med and all of the sponsors. When you use my links, you're supporting the show. Oh, we see, we see everything. So I do basically adults that are in the hospital, not because of anything that's not requiring surgery. So let's see, I just was on service or just working through Sunday and we had Oh, what do we have? Um, like liver disease, pneumonias, lots of like bad skin infections, heart failure, hmm. kind of weird infections. People with like HIV and syphilis. Syphilis. People um, still get syphilis? Cancer. Compli- they do. They do. It seems like it's an outbreak, actually. I was, I worked for, I did two weeks straight and we had two cases of it. It hmm. was kind of crazy. Is that not something easy to avoid? Uh, it's actually sort of tricky because you don't always have symptoms. Wow. And so you can easily pass it to people without knowing that you're infected. And then by the time you figure it out or you never had symptoms, like the other people get it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's t- not great. Keep that in mind when you're swiping left and right. Um, right. Yeah. Syphilis. Uh, what do we do? A big jolt of uh, antibiotic? Well, for most people, if it's simple, yeah, you can just do that and you don't need to go, like you just go to your primary doctor and get that. We saw people that had more complicated cases with what we call ocular syphilis. So your optic nerve um, would actually get infected. Uh, And then one case where it was like uh, meningeal syphilis as well. So like the covering around your brain and your spinal cord could get infected as Mm, well. mm. It's a little more complicated. Syphilis can do everything. Yeah, back in the day, blindness was very common from syphilis, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so you have to get two weeks of antibiotics to treat that. So we take care of you then. Where's that come from? But your bits being dirty? Or where do you get that? How does that happen? Syphilis? Yeah. Yeah, it's a bacteria that gets passed. Um, and usually through sexual contact, you can mm. get sores that have like bacteria in them. So when you have contact between people. Mm-hmm. I know how it works, Anna. Yeah. You don't have to show off. <laughs> 
Uh, we all understand what you're saying. I just I I relate syphilis to like West, like the old West, and I thought, oh, they must have been like. Actually, what I thought was they must have been like banging in the dirt, and so that's why I asked the question. <laughs> <laughs> all they needed was a vacuum, and this would have gone away. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, not quite. <laughs> not quite. Uh, am I am I oversimplifying syphilis? All right. So so you see a a menagerie of things. Yes, ah. I see all different things, which is what I like. Okay. Is the was the path set already to medical school when you were diagnosed with diabetes? It was. So I actually got diagnosed like right after I took the MCAT, which is a big like entrance exam that you have to take. Mm-hmm. And so like I had already planned on going. I hadn't like obviously done my application yet because it was that comes later. Um, but I was like pre-med and had done all that stuff and took the MCAT and had issues taking the MCAT because I'd have to pee so bad that like I was barely making it to the breaks to like run out and go pee between the different sections of this like day long test. Yeah. And then two weeks later, got went into my PCP, and that's when I got diagnosed. So, okay. so it wasn't. I already knew. Yeah, you weren't one of those people who was like, I had such great nurses growing up and stuff like that that I wanted to be. It wasn't like that. No, you it was definitely that. not that. Um, may I ask, prestige or money? What draws people to medicine more? I think both. Both definitely do. I the people that I work with, I work in a safety net hospital, um, so it's more. People are more not money. <laughs> we don't make much money compared to other types of positions. Anna, not an English um, major, huh? No. People make more not money. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's different, though. I mean, I also, I do academic medicine as well. So my hospital is associated with University of Colorado, and I teach medical students. Okay. And in academics, it's definitely more of the prestige. Mm-hmm. You want to be published. You want to have a national reputation. Well, you have to be published and you have to have a national reputation to keep your job. But private medicine, especially subspecialties, there can be a big draw of money. Do you ever think you'll go private and have a practice or do you like the setting you're in? I I don't think so. I really like working with underserved communities. That's what I love about my hospital is mm-hmm. we serve like the city and county of Denver. And so we will find a way to make sure that you get the care that you need no matter what your financial circumstances. I also do some work with the criminal justice community. And so I don't think the private sector is not that interested in those populations. Yeah. So you, do you see prisoners in? Yeah. Yeah. So in my hospital, we have a unit that's just for people that are currently incarcerated, getting medical care. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I do some of the education for medical students and residents around caring for people that are incarcerated or that used to be incarcerated, have some history. Anna, why are you such a good person? What's going on? <laughs> I don't know. It must be the diabetes. You think so? Are you I, nicer since you were 20? I think everybody's nicer since they were 20. When you're 20, you're still kind of a teenager. Yeah. Bit of a dick, usually. Like, yeah. Yeah, all like, I understand everything, and you don't need to tell me, and I got it. Exactly. Yeah, that whole thing. Okay, this is interesting. But you skipped over my thing. Are your parents, like, super decent people? Do you remember being raised like that? just how you are? What do you think? I think so. Yeah. My mom is a nurse. Um, and so I used to always like see her, you know, going to work and doing take your daughter to work days. And my dad is a a college professor, teaches the new Testament in a small Midwest school. Um, but yeah, it was always sort of an important value of like giving back in our family and helping. So you're seeing people help people. And is there a, is there a, 
a vein of religion in your upbringing or no? There is for sure. So my, my dad teaches uh, the New Testament. So he teaches the Bible in school and my grandfather was a pastor. So our family is pretty religious. I got it all But I out. think okay. that not everyone besides my dad, like kind of works outside, not necessarily like, specific to religion. My mm-hmm. young, I have a younger sister that lives close to us and she works in kind of like social work type situations. She works with people that have developmental delays, helping them get the resources that they need in the community. Mm, yeah. Well, that's uh, a nice group you got going over there. All right. <laughs> so you are diagnosed as you're taking, and my wife took the MCATs, by the way. I remember her leaving my car with a fistful of pencils and I picked her up like a day later, it felt like. Yeah. <laughs> that was my experience with that. She's like, I'll be back. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> so she came back very dizzy. She was like, oh my God. Uh, that was a yeah, lot. It's the worst. Yeah. I guess I want to know that 18 years ago was. 2005 ish. So what did you start with as far as uh, management? What, what kind of gear did they give you? I did Lantus and Novolog pens when I was first diagnosed. Do you use a pump now? I do use a pump now. I have a tandem pump now. I actually switched to a pump probably three years in. I switched to a pump in medical school because of my medical school training or I was like a medical student rotating on the end surgery and it would be really hard to like know when I was going to take breaks. And when I was using Lantus, I had to eat more regularly to like avoid hypoglycemia. Mm-hmm. And it was like, well, this is dangerous if I'm like in surgery. And so I switched to a pump. So I had more control over my basal rates. And I, I think I had a Medtronic pump initially. Your med student is laying inside of the patient. What's happening? Yes. <laughs> I'm very, yes. I'm very sure, it was a nice excuse if I didn't want to do something. Be like, oh, I got to go t- have a snack. Oh. I got to go. <laughs> Wait, who pooped themselves? Oh, no, no, no. I'm dizzy. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Did you ever do that? Yeah. Um, I definitely got out of things in surgery when I realized that that was not what I wanted to do. Oh, I see. Maybe like... I have to say it's only twice, three times in the whole, like the entire time Arden's had diabetes. But she said to me, can we just say this is diabetes? <laughs> this one, this yeah. one time, can I just, can I just get out of this? And I was like, oh, just blame it on the diabetes. Sure. This one time, whatever. And she seriously, I, I mean, she had, it's not, uh, it's not a go-to for her, but there's been like once or twice where she's like, I can't like, and one time she said, you know, now that I said that, I'm just exhausted because I was up all night. It is diabetes. And I was like, there you go. So anyway, when do you get married? I got married in 2008. So between like my first and second year of medical school. I'm from the Midwest. So I got married pretty young. We got to start making babies. Um, (laughs) Was that your intention to have a family or you just found a decent person? My family thought it was our intention because we didn't have my son until we were married. 10 years. Oh. So very confusing for people from Michigan to be married for so long and not have kids. So just a guy you just didn't want to lose? We had been dating for a while. We started dating my sophomore year in college and we didn't get married until like a year after we graduated. Mm-hmm. But it was also sort of a time where we were figuring out, like I was figuring out medical school. My husband was trying to figure out going to business school and like having to make decisions about where to apply and where to go. And it was sort of like, well, either we're going to be serious and get married and like figure this out together or we're going to break up and kind of just do this on our own. Um, and so. Oh, is it working? We to, or, or you, <laughs> it or you, is. Or are you sick of yeah, it? Yeah. No. It's our 15 year anniversary this summer. Wow. That's pretty long. 
Yeah. Congratulations. It's just interesting because you. you see that. Oh, you're welcome. It just there's that moment, right? Like you're too you're too young to get married, but you found somebody that you're like, I don't want to lose track of this person. And then mm-hmm. life's about to happen, and we're going to if we don't do something. Mm-hmm. Interesting, 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 yeah. interesting. And then you just had we're so busy. Like I'm assuming starting a family is the last thing on your mind. Yeah, I mean the first year, like medical school, I did it was insane, and then like residency is even worse. You're working like 80 hours a week. We spent a year apart because he was finishing business school for a year, my first year of residency. So he was in Michigan finishing school. I was in Colorado starting my training. Oh, look at you. How, how did you find the distance thing? Was it um, testing and taxing or was it uh, a thing that built up your relationship? I think somewhere kind of in between. To be honest, like I was so busy that even if he lived here with or lived with me at the time, I wouldn't have seen him that much. And I mean, I make fun of him for this now, but like business school is not that hard and it's not that busy. And so he was able to come out and visit a lot. Like he would, he was out until August when he started school. And then he was out for a week at Thanksgiving and then was out for like four or five weeks at Christmas, um, came out lots of weekends. Hmm. And when he wasn't here, I would be leaving the house at like 5 a.m. and getting back between like 6 and 7 p.m. Yeah. Oh, I and have doing work and going to bed. I have until. thought I have thought you were going to say like I was glad he wasn't here. Like th- th- cuz like where would you find the time for a person? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I actually my younger sister actually moved with me to Colorado, so she lived with me. Nice. So I wasn't all alone, well, but nice. she would like make my lunch for me because I would just be like exhausted at yeah. the end of the day. How come um I have to ask this question to get to my thought. So you listen to the podcast? I do. For how long? Months, years? Probably no years. I want to say probably three or four years. Okay. How come, and it kind of goes in waves, like being super consistent and then like taking a break and then coming back to it. Yeah, I wish I could take a break for myself too. Um, Anna, <laughs> <laughs> so my question was uh, by the way, for anyone listening, if I ever ask you if you listen to the podcast, you say yes, every day I listen to three because we're, you know, we're selling here. But I, I understand the re- <laughs> I understand the reality of it. My question wasn't around like, hey, do you listen to me? My question was, how come you're not mad at me if you're a doctor? I mean, I'm going to be honest, at times I am. Oh, that okay. was one of the reasons why I reached out. And not mad, but I mean, I just I feel defensive sometimes when I hear some of the conversation around physicians, although I get it at the same time because I see a lot of the same things and I get to see it from both perspectives of patient and physician. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to hear like, so I'll start with this. When, when you hear criticisms of doctors who don't understand the thing they're helping you with or don't seem motivated to better your health, you're not that kind of doctor, right? No. Why does it, why does it hit you hard then? Um, Cause it's still my community and mm-hmm. I, and I sometimes see it where I, I think I have an understanding of why doctors may be doing things that looks like we're not trying or we're not listening, but like we're in reality, maybe just bad at explaining what we're doing and why we're doing it. Okay. No, I, I believe that as well. I think that there's plenty that's happening that goes unsaid. My mom went in for a blood test the other day. Uh, she had a concern and the doctor ran blood work, but didn't run the thing that we were concerned about it over. And 
we, my brother lives with my mom now, like, you know, in the same place. So he called me afterwards. He said, Hey, you know, talk to the doctor. They said this, we're going to do a blah, blah, blah in a couple of weeks. And at that point, she'll get a blood test. Um, and, but he sent her for blood work today, but didn't test the value that we were, that, that has us here. And I was like, why? Mm-hmm. And my brother goes, I don't know. I didn't ask. And I was like, well, I mean, is that on purpose? Like, would it not matter if it happened right now? Like, is there no value in doing it right now? Is it an oversight? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then we talked it through and we assumed it's just, I mean, she's going to get this done again in a couple of weeks. He probably just wanted there to be some space in between. But if you didn't know that, I can see being upset. Like, like, well, this is the thing I'm worried about. Why would you not look again? And, and, but my mm-hmm. brother said there was no explanation whatsoever about why he did anything. As a matter of fact, the things he said, my brother's like, there's only half an explanation here. It's like, oh, I'm really worried about this before that. And my brother, and so I said to my brother, why is he really worried about that? And my brother goes, I, I don't know. And I was like, why the hell didn't you ask? And he goes, I freeze up in these situations. And so, yeah, you know, so you get in that scenario where you as the doctor know what you're thinking and you don't explain it to the person sitting there. And because the person doesn't ask a question, you just cruise right past it. That I think that mm-hmm. happens a lot, right? Yeah, it happens all the time. And it's, one of the things I really like to do is like medical education. So I work with first year medical students, um, in addition to residents at the hospital, like specifically on communication. Mm-hmm. And we spend a lot of time trying to do better kind of like with the next generation of medical students and doctors of communicating more clearly. And we also know looking at like medical legal literature that people get upset with their physicians and people sue their physicians more so because of poor communication rather than even just bad outcomes. Mm. And so it's physicians have a communication problem that we need to improve on. That's very interesting. I think that in the end, like for me in this position, making the podcast, I can't worry so much about how we got there. I have to worry about where we are when we're talking about like somebody saying, well, I don't know, you know, I don't know anything about my insulin. Nobody's ever explained it to me. I didn't understand fat impacted my blood sugar. When I went back and talked to my doctor, my doctor said, no, they no, it doesn't. It doesn't have carbs in it. Like, so there's levels of incompetency. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, Mm -hmm. but in the end, if you're going to ask me to take someone's side, I'm almost always going to take the side of the patient because they're the one that goes home and then lives with the thing. Mm -hmm. So they get the short end of the, syphilis stick no matter what happens right <laughs> you, you know like maybe the doctor did it for a good reason but my brother and my mom had we not all spoken would have spent the next three weeks worrying about something because mm-hmm. because of poor communication so yeah yeah and and there are I, and i hear from doctors like i hear like you uh what do they call it doctor um bashing yeah, they call it doctor bashing yeah right yeah yeah and I've also had, there's a great episode of this podcast where an endocrinologist comes on here and talks about how this podcast literally changed the face of the way that she treats people because she started out listening and being angry at me and then found her way to the other side of it. I don't know if you've ever heard that one, but it's really kind, mm-hmm. of, kind of amazing, right? So yeah. um, so what do I do that, what do I do that makes you mad and what do I do that makes you happy? Um, I mean, the education people, part of it makes me happy. I think I've learned more about like more advanced management of diabetes through listening through this podcast than I learned as like a patient and being taught by doctors and uh, like diabetic educators. 
and I, and it's more close to home. Like the, when we talk, when I hear conversations around like inpatient management of diabetes, people get hospitalized and the frustrations of dealing with their diabetes in the hospital. I think that's where I kind of want to be like, not necessarily mad at you, but like, I want to explain kind of the backside of it. It's not that it's always done right. And there clearly are errors and it's not always managed well. Um, I see that with, at my hospital too, it's not always done well, but I think there's kind of background that just isn't explained well. Yeah. About why, why we approach diabetes different in the hospital than like what you'd want to do on your day to day. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear you uh, tell me more about that. Go ahead, please. Sure. Um, This is what I talk with, like when I teach medical students and residents uh, in the hospital, it depends on what your patient is there for, like how closely and how aggressively we manage diabetes. And so I'm an internist. So I see people that are not there for surgery. Surgery is kind of a different category. Um, for hospitalized patients, but we try to go by evidence and by studies. And so there's a study that's actually called Nice Sugar that looked at patients that were hospitalized um, and categorized them as either really tight control, trying to keep blood sugars um, in the low 100s versus uh, moderate control, looser control, where their blood sugars could go up to 180 and seeing how outcomes were. And what they found was that there was no benefit to keeping people tighter controlled in the hospital. The only thing that they found that it did was really increase rates of hypoglycemia in the hospital. And so like negative outcomes. And so for hospitalized patients with diabetes, we allow more hyperglycemia, really not worrying about the blood sugar as long as it's staying 180 or less. And then we also know that people eat differently in the hospital because of the food that we have available to them. They tend to be NPO in the hospital. They tend to be less active in the hospital. So blood sugars are going to be different. So we allow more ups and downs, especially the up part of it. I have questions. And so I think, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Why is the food terrible in a hospital? It makes no sense. It feels (laughs) feels like an oxymoron. I don't know. It is really terrible. Yeah, it would be like if I went to yoga and they gave me a highball on the way in. I'd be like, these things don't seem like they go together at all. Like, like you know what I mean? Like, what, health, hospital, and then the food is like, and, and how do they not seem to understand what a diabetic menu is either? It's very, it's all very old school. Um, yeah, it's sad. <laughs> I just say my hospital has really, they're trying to be better. The food is not any better, but they're trying to be better about like specialized diets, like for diabetes, um, where we used to just like put people on a super, super low carb diet. And it was like, you have no choice. This is all you get. Um, and we try not to do that as much anymore. And we have amazing diabetic educators who I think are just as good for our patients that need to talk to diabetic educators, but also like in teaching the physicians and like the residents and the nurses and like everyone else more yeah. as well. Are, are lower, more stable blood sugars, not more conducive to healing? They are, but only with a cutoff of 180. Really being being lower, having been like closer to 100 than 180 doesn't show that much of a benefit for medical problems. Now, when you look at surgery patients who have maybe like open wounds that need to heal, there is a benefit to targeting blood sugars more like 110 rather than 180. And so you do have to take care of your patients differently. But if you're like in the hospital with pneumonia, there isn't any healing benefit, no mortality or morbidity, meaning like you're not going to have higher rates of death or higher rates of poor outcome if you target a blood sugar of 180 rather than 110. The um, study that you spoke about, was there any 
look at what happens to people when they leave. Like what happens when you subconsciously put it into somebody's head that their blood sugar can be 180 and it's okay. Do they go home and continue that trend instead of doing what they were doing if they were shooting for lower and having success? So that study, no, it only looked at morbidity and mortality for inpatients. It didn't follow them at home. And I mean, that definitely could happen. And that's where it's like on the providers to be educating their patients to, hey, things are different in the hospital. We're going to do it different. Mm. There was another interesting study that came out, I think, two years ago now that looked at, does it matter if we change insulin in in the hospital once you get discharged? Like, are there benefits to us trying to adjust your insulin to give you with ideally tighter control? And that study showed also that no, but when, if you go into the hospital and somebody tells you how to change your insulin or to increase your doses, you probably shouldn't listen to them because it didn't make any difference in your control once you got home. All it did was increase your rates of hypoglycemia without actually changing your A1C at all. Yeah. So I understand the so, hospital looking at that, that small slice, but I think it ignore mm-hmm. it ignores a lot of like important issues. First of all, people who end up in the hospital whose blood sugars are higher to begin with, don't seem to know how to manage their diabetes to begin with, Mm -hmm. you know, so Mm -hmm. maybe that's why they're finding themselves in the hospital, you know, with, with frequency. And then, and then you show them a higher number and you say, it's okay. And they go, okay, well, that's okay. And you say, well, you know, you should educate them, but somebody's already tried to educate them a couple of times and sort of left them for, I was going to say left them for dead, but I don't mean that. I meant like we kind of left them adrift. You you, you know, like somebody shows up and says, Hey, here's diabetes and your A1C seven and a half or eight, and then you go to the doctor and you're like, that's not bad, it's good, like you're doing great. Like now you're like, oh, well, this is okay. And then you go to the hospital and the hospital's like, oh, it's fine if it's higher. And by the way, you can have peach cobbler, it's on the diabetic menu. And then you go home and backslide in an amazing way. And then somehow mm-hmm. this the survey thing that the hospital did was like, oh, it works great. <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, I just feel like it's bigger picture. Like, and I'm relating it to, pregnant women who I've spoken to who -hmm. will say like, you know, it's interesting. I, my blood sugars were, uh, but then I wanted to get pregnant. So boom, I put it in the fives. Like it was nothing. And then a lot of them say the minute they have the baby, it goes back again. And, and so Mm -hmm. it's easy to say like, cause there's an example where the person knows what to do and, and can do it. And still when given like the tiniest out, we'll just take it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know, I think it ignores that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not, and by the way, I didn't just pull peach cobbler out of my butt. My mom had, uh, you know, a significant amount of cancer removed, was recuperating in a hospital, pre-diabetes on her chart. And I go in to visit her one day and she's got a big piece of pie. And I go, uh, mom, what, 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 what are we doing with the pie? And she goes, oh, they brought it in. And I said, you tell me you have di- you know, diabetes? She goes, yeah, they said it's on the diabetic menu. I'm allowed to pick one thing from this. And I was like... Okay, <laughs> like I don't even know what to do. I give up. Yeah. So it's just it's and I get and I but I I take your point of the other side of it. There's a lot going mm-hmm. on. If you can reduce hypoglycemia in the hospital, I mean, amazing. I just the and then there's the last piece of it that I think for the people coming in who already know how to like I use my daughter as an example. If my daughter had to go to the hospital. And somebody suddenly said, hey, you can keep her blood sugar at 180 all day. I'd be like, well, that's 100 points higher than we try to keep her blood sugar. And, yeah. and not only that, but she's 18. And so for the last 16 years, 
We've been endeavoring to keep her blood sugar lower and stable. And now I go to a place again that says health to me and I get there and they say, hey, do something unhealthy. And I think that might be the bigger leap for people who are already in better control. So I, I see the downside mm-hmm. of people who are struggling for the people who are struggling. And I see the downside for the people who are within themselves. Mm-hmm. So I understand how it is, but how should it be? Like perfect world, what should be happening? It, it should be patient dependent because it's so variable. Like people like your daughter are most, I feel like that most type ones have a better understanding of their disease and what they need. And that should be continued. A lot of the people that I take care of have type two diabetes who just haven't had the education and don't have as tight control and as kind of aggressive management of their diabetes where yeah. that's where we tend to kind of have looser, I think, goals and we tend to manage it more. And in the just better education overall, I remember having my kid in the hospital and I was on an insulin pump at the time and there was like sort of panic around like how long I could wear my insulin pump and what blood sugars were okay uh, and who was going to manage it. And I ended up having a C-section and like, when does it come on? When does it go off? And I had to have my endocrinologist basically had to like write out, like, it's okay to do what she wants. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. it was very nerve wracking for them. And I see kind of the privilege that I have is also being a physician that I get to do a little bit more of what I want uh, with it. And that not all patients who come in, even if they have better control than I do and understanding than I do don't have that ability to have that kind of control over their healthcare. Nerve wracking for them because your level of understanding is not the level of understanding they're accustomed to from patients. Yeah. That they were much used, much more used to being like, okay, well now we're going to do a C-section. So you're going to go on an insulin drip and a glucose drip and we're going to take your pump off and we're going to manage your diabetes after that. And I was like, I would rather keep my pump on until I absolutely cannot and then go back onto the pump. Um, and I'd like to keep my ducks come on and manage my blood sugars that way. Yeah. Like Did your husband help during the birth. He, he was there. Yeah. <laughs> that was, so- he, he does not help. <laughs> you know, no. Did your husband he, help he on there. it? He was there. <laughs> Medicine is not his forte. So he was managing himself. <laughs> you went to so much effort not to go. No, uh, not at all. He did not help me one little bit. <laughs> So the idea of like, I want to leave it on until I absolutely can't means unless I get mm-hmm. unconscious and then, yes. or, or just, or, or I just, I'm unable somehow. Cause yeah. Cause that's, that's their concern. That's the concern we have. If you get so sick that you can't manage it yourself. And I was on Omnipod at the time that I gave birth and my, my care team was not familiar with Omnipod. Not a lot of people in my health system use it. They were just worried. Like, well, what are we going to do if we don't know what do, you're doing? Do you think if happening? they had to put you under? In that scenario, the last thing you would have yelled is, he's a business major. <laughs> <laughs> he he would have gone, my mom, as I mentioned before, is a nurse. He would have just been like, get my mother-in-law, which is essentially <laughs> what he did right after I had my son. Because my son had some hypoglycemia immediately, and then I was hypotensive and not really with it. And he basically told him, I need my mother-in-law here to help. <laughs> Please. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I so many vacations. You need to get health. help. <laughs> yeah. That was a good thing. Don't look to me, please. I just I imagine your your measurement for all that is just like he he was a business major. <laughs> don't pretty don't, much. Don't ask him anything. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm sure there are plenty of like very with it business majors, and I'm sure your husband's one of them. It's just I I just I don't know. I'm in a good mood this week for some reason. I've been laughing through most of my interviews the last couple of days. Hopefully that won't get That's irritating to people. I think so. I mean, one lady was from Canada, 
Oh my God. Fantastic. She told such a scary story. Uh, anyway, I don't want to ruin it for anybody. And the scary story wasn't about living in Canada. It was something about diabetes. <laughs> okay. So, so we understand how it works in the hospital. People <laughs> should, people should, you know, do, I think do what you did, like go in with a plan, tell them like, mm-hmm. I, you know, here's my intention. Like if it, if it becomes emergent, you have to take it away from me. Okay. But up until then I want to do it like this. Mm-hmm. I Arden had an exploratory surgery once that was only like 45 minutes long and they ended up taking out some like a cyst near her ovary or something. Mm-hmm. But actually they called it a pocket of fluid. I don't know if that's a cyst, but they were like, Hey, just turn the algorithm off while she's in there. And I was like, okay. And I like flipped my finger around on the phone a bunch and I left the algorithm on and sent her right in. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, that thing is her best chance not to go low while she's in there. And yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and so, um, but they put her like her phone in a bag. They understood the connection between CGM and the pump and the loop in on the phone. They kept the phone near her the whole time. And as a matter of fact, I remotely adjusted her basal while she was in there, like in the, awesome. in the hospital. And I and my wife's like, they said not to do that. And I went, eh, yeah, it's okay. I'm gonna do yeah, it. No. Yeah, I'm gonna do this anyway. They, they don't care. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah. They they just they just they just wanted they said the thing they're good now and and we're you know let's get past this kept her blood sugar super during the procedure afterwards um, the whole thing but I also mm-hmm. get that there are plenty of people who don't know what they're doing but I kind of want to like mm-hmm. shift for a second to type two if you don't mind because of your experience sure. what is it like really like being honest like people can't adjust what like why can't they do something for themselves. Like, why are there so many people in a hospital where the hospital's just like, yeah, listen, eh, they don't seem to know what they're doing. Let's get them out of here for this emergent problem. Like, like why, why isn't it like, I don't know, what, what's my point? If I came in with like a fractured finger, um, but that's not why I was there. I was there for something else. And I kept telling mm-hmm. you, oh, my finger hurts. And you're like, oh, their finger's fractured. You wouldn't ignore it. You'd fix my mm-hmm. finger. But how come mm-hmm. people don't know how to manage their type 2 diabetes and we just act like that's the cost of doing business? Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. I think that's kind of two parts. I think the biggest reason why we don't intervene in the hospital and try to like fix that understanding around diabetes and improve outcomes, probably number one, to be honest, is money. That it costs money to be in the hospital. We need to be reimbursed for what we do. The best thing you could do to intervene would be to educate and spend time educating around like what the disease is. How do we treat it? Why do we make these adjustments? Like how can they self-manage better? Mm-hmm. And we don't get reimbursed for that. Um, and so we don't have time to do that. Can I, I think that's one of the big, yeah. Can I ask <laughs> a question based on that? And it's going to sound argumentative and it's not. Yeah. Do you think people don't know they shouldn't eat Twinkies? as an example, or that they shouldn't not exercise, or that when someone tells them they are insulin resistant, that they, you know, couldn't do the, I'm not saying that, you know, there are plenty of, there are plenty of people who get type two diabetes for, you know, reasons that aren't Mm -hmm. about how they eat. I'm not saying that, but for the people who that is the situation, like, I don't understand what education is going to do for them. Like, I feel like they know the thing already. Like, is it, is it just, I'm I'm just trying to get to the point of like somewhere in a back room is a doctor going like, I could say this, but they're not going to listen to me. Is that a big part of being a doctor? The frustration of being a doctor? 
some of it, some of that is very frustrating. And I think there are, I think a lot of people don't understand the intricacies of like what it actually means, like what a carb is, like, how do you change your diet? What kind of exercise is important? And I see a lot of people. Hmm. Anna, you just went away for a second. Sorry. You're going to come back. In- well, you need to eat healthy. Well, what does healthy mean? Like just, and people are saying, well, I'm eating healthy. But when you talk about diet, maybe they're still having a lot of noodles or still having a lot of tortillas or other things that are carb heavy, but in their culture aren't viewed as bad. Mm-hmm. So that can be one of the issues. Yeah, that's, I find that fascinating too. Like um, there's a, a significant rise in type two and the Indian culture, like on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the rest. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of around me. And the, if you talk to them privately, like the Indian people that I've met that I've spoken to, they're like, yeah, I know, like, you know, the food we eat's not great for this. And, mm-hmm. but this is what we eat. I'm like, uh, okay. Like, I don't know. Like Jenny and I just got done doing yeah. an entire type two series where we were, you know, I mean, it, it felt important to us to be respectful that not everybody gets to diabetes through poor diet and no exercise, but it's a big factor. And mm-hmm. and that whole idea of like, well, they need to be educated, that always seems like a way of saying, look, we'll say it to everybody, but not everybody's going to get it. It doesn't seem like a cop-out. I do actually think it's the right thing to do, but it's so contingent on the person receiving the information and then following through. And that's hard, really difficult to do. You, you know, and yeah. I, 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 there's no shade for me on that. Like, it, just to, like, go home one day and decide I'm going to eat differently and not just for a day or a week or a month, but forever and ever. Like, I don't, mm-hmm. that's a very difficult thing to do, especially with how food is produced and packaged and moved around and and. You know, you just said something that I find frightening, not that I haven't thought of it before, but there are people eating things that are really bad for them, and they actually think they're having, like, a healthy meal. Like, mm-hmm. It's fascinating, you, you know, um, the lack of understanding, uh, I guess, and it could mm-hmm. be cultural. I don't know why I'm saying all this, just that it seems it seems like a very impactable situation that we don't seem to have any luck impacting whatsoever. Yeah. And I think an education fails when it's like this prepackaged of here's a handout of the food you should eat and the exercise you should do. Sure. And you don't know who you're talking to and what food they enjoy eating and what their day to day looks like. How do they make those changes if it doesn't actually look like what their life is? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where I think we fail where we're like, just just eat healthy. Here's a handout. Here's the food. Make sure you exercise you know, 30 minutes a day without actually talking to people to figure out what those barriers are. Yeah. No, Jenny and I have been talking about it a lot lately because um, I'm going to tell you something that I don't know that'll be in the public for a while, but your episode will come out later. So actually today was my third injection of week OV. Mm. So three Tuesdays ago, I started taking like almost a non-therapeutic level of week OV. It's that they start you off um, very low, yeah. 0.25 um, milligrams. Micro MG, what's MG? Go on. Milligrams. Thank you, I had it right. So I would tell you, I think I need to lose 30 pounds. But my body holds all my weight in my midsection. Like, like no lie, my arms, my legs, like all like look like I weigh like 175. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm, and I'm five nine. I look like my arms and legs look like I'm my my butt too. I'm sorry to say, um, they all look like I I met my weight. It's all in 
not even as much in my chest. It's mostly in my stomach. Like there is, Mm -hmm. I, I don't, anyway, it's significant, but my eating habits are not terrible. Like my body just doesn't manage well. Like if I eat anything, Mm -hmm. I gain weight like a, like a pregnant lady retaining water, but like no, no lie. It's terrible. Like, um, my whole life. So I went to the doctor, uh, to an integrative endocrinologist. And I said, look, kids are gone now. Like they're ones working ones in school. I have a little bit of time to focus on myself. Why, why does my body do this? She gave me blood work, like, like so much, you know, she came back and said, listen, people would pay for your blood work. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, well, that's what, like, what the fuck? Like, like that's exactly what I said. I was like, well, then what, this doesn't change anything. I've said it a bunch of times in the podcast. I'll say it here. I am the fattest person who doesn't eat much food that you're ever going to meet in your life. Like it, it just doesn't <laughs> make any sense, you know? And it's not like the little bit that I eat is just like a bag of sugar or, you know, like I'm mm-hmm. just a piece of chicken. I have an egg. I put a wrap in it. Um, you know, I have a, a scoop of yogurt once in a while. I like a sorbet sometimes in the early evening. Uh, I make it myself on a, uh, like, like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like I'll eat a banana once in a while. Yeah. Like it's not, it's not, it's not a crazy existence I'm living through. So she says, well, let's try this. And she goes, you know, your insurance covers it. I think you should try it. So I shoot the Wigovi mm-hmm. on a Tuesday. And by in the first four days, I lose a pound every day. And I'm like, that's got to be like, I did change my, wow. like, like I, I was very careful not to eat fat, right? Because they, they kept saying like, you might get nauseous or feel over full. I'm like, oh, I don't want that. But I was just eating like a couple of eggs in the morning with some turkey cut into it or some chicken cut into it or some steak. Uh, I started having it with a wrap, you know, I have something like for lunch and, you know, a sensible dinner, like, you know, just that, like I'm just going along eating a pound Mm -hmm. a day, first four days, the next three days, my weight stays exactly the same. It won't go up and it won't go down. On the second Tuesday, I shoot the Wegovi. I lose a pound for the first four days. Now I'm on the phone with the doctor. She's checking in with me and I tell her this and she goes, that is not normal. Like that doesn't happen to people. (laughs) And I'm like, I'm like, okay. Like, so then I get like a scientist or my version of a scientist in my mind. Now I'm starting to eat things like what'll happen if I eat candy? Like, like, or it was Easter. So I ate more food and I was like, let me nothing. Uh, Those three days I did not gain any weight. Even even one day, like I had a big bowl of popcorn at dinner, like, you know, et cetera. Now, as this medication ramps up and I get more milligrams, that's going to become less and less possible because for the first three days, I did have that like overly full feeling in my stomach, which has gone away now. Uh, the feeling's gone away, but I still can't eat very much. Like if I tried to overeat, it would be difficult. Hmm. So I'm like, all right, so. I was now excited to inject it today. I was like, go, let's get to the next four pounds, baby. You, you know, like, like if this is what's going to happen, I don't know, like maybe that won't happen this week. It might've been all very anecdotal, but what I can tell you is not anecdotal is my appetite. Like I have to remind myself to eat. I feel full sooner when I'm eating. And that's from this medication. Like it's not, it's nothing that I've done differently, but had I, had I, eaten like this for the past two weeks without Wegovia, I would not have lost eight pounds that I'm, I'm, I'm very confident of. And I don't know if it's because it's limiting my intake or, you know, there are some studies that are preliminary that say that Wegovia, Ozempic, you know, those drugs direct your body to burn fat instead of muscle when you're in a deficit. 
And mm-hmm. they, it, I don't think that's been substantiated completely to the point where they say it out loud, but it's, it, I'm hearing those rumblings that that, that might be it. Anyway, I, I'm sharing that because I think that there are a lot of people who we can educate till the end of time and tell them what to do that's right and point them in the right direction. But in the end, because of the way the food system's set up, I don't think they're mm-hmm. going to be able to do it. I don't see any reason not to help them along the way, like like I'm being helped. Because I'm like, as yeah. we're talking, Anna, like, I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of me. But for context, when I went to the endocrinologist um, before my initial appointment for this, I stood up and I said, in your mind right now, like, how much do you think I weigh? And I'm like, and I'm going to get on a scale soon. So be perfectly honest because you can't hurt my feelings. And she looked me up and down and said, I think you weigh about 175 pounds. And I was 233 that day. (laughs) So I just, it's all in one place and it's, I hide it well. I might, I've broad shoulders. Like I think part of that, like kind of just draws people's attention away from it. But for me personally, it stopped me for all those years from looking in the mirror and thinking, oh my God, I have to do something because I don't look like I have to do something. If that makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I don't know how to help these people, but I don't think educating them is going to help. Not based on my experience for the last two and a half weeks. Like, well, I would say when I say educate, I don't just mean like diet and exercise education. I think part of the problem is type one diabetics. I think we learn how to manage our diabetes by having more control over like how much insulin to inject and when and how to use insulin. And I don't think type twos are taught that part of it. And so like when I talk to a lot of type two diabetics, they don't always understand how the insulin works. Like and how it can be related to what you're eating and how it might need to be adjusted based on what you're eating and what your mm-hmm. activity is. And so like teaching people to be better advocates for themselves and to take control with other things in medicine. Like if you have hypertension, like we sort of def- you defer that to your provider to like check your blood sugar and tell you what dose of blood pressure medication you need. But diabetes doesn't do well when it's managed that way. Yeah. Uh, you need that like daily those daily numbers and knowing your activities and you need to know how in the medications work. So you know how to adjust them and how to advocate for yourself to get those adjustments neat done. Yeah. To some degree, my contention too, is that it can't kill you right away type two. And that's why they don't, mm-hmm. they don't like, like viciously learn about it in the beginning. Because, yeah. because and it's he, just, it's know. different too. Like your pancreas like kind of works at first. So you don't need bolus basal insulin at first. You can do basal at some point you're going to need bolus maybe. Like you can use oral medications. It's not as clean cut kind of where it's like, well, now you're in charge of your insulin. Yeah, it's a great point. Like not everybody's type two is going to be exactly the same. Whereas mm-hmm. everyone's type one needs insulin or eh, or you're or you're going to die. So like, you know, yeah. like we have to. But I really do think that's part of it. Like that feeling in the hospital, like, OK, so if I don't give the insulin, the blood sugar goes up, coma, death. All right. Well, mm-hmm. I'll do that. And, and the, so you never question that ever again. You're like that, mm-hmm. that has to happen. And, you know, mm-hmm. and so with type two, it's like, well, why don't we try, you know, could you go for a walk in the afternoon and let, let's cut out a little bit of this and that we'll see where we're six months from now. I think there's the lack of like, I don't know, immediacy that that's lost. I, I do wonder if you weren't told more directly, like this is going to lead to a significant health concern. Like, I don't even, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, I talked about it in the type two series that we made 
but I met a person who got put on Ozempic. They had type two. And um, I said, oh, how was that? Because I hadn't done this yet. I was, you know, just listening to people and person said, uh, it's great. I lost 25 pounds. I had no appetite whatsoever. I was like, oh, wow, that's great. I'm like, you know, you know, do you expect to lose more? And they said, I stopped taking it. And I said, why? And they said, well, you know, I wasn't hungry. I, I like eating. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what? Like, like all the good stuff that came for this person's health, they weren't concerned with. I don't even know that they understood it. Mm-hmm. Like I, all they saw was I injected this stuff and yeah, I lost weight and that part was good, but I'm the kind of person who enjoys blah, blah, blah. And it took all my enjoyment away from my food. So I stopped taking it. I was like, wow. Like, can you imagine if like somebody said to you, like, I don't know, like if you stop taking your insulin, you know, you, you won't die, but you know, you'll have all these other health implications over years. And you're like, yeah, but at least I get to do this now. Like it was such a strange, but I thought telling like interaction, like this person was not concerned as much with their long-term success as they were with their short-term things. It's just very interesting. I think it's, it's hard to understand. Like you don't, you know, a lot of times you don't feel that terrible. And if you don't feel bad and you think you're just taking these medications maybe to look better, but that doesn't, that doesn't hold as much value to you. And nobody's talked to you about how uncontrolled diabetes can affect every organ in your body. And this is what you can expect if we don't manage it. And right, right. I mean, from your perspective, yeah. that story, it freaks you out as much as it freaked me out, right? Like, yeah. like cause you're like, like a doctor did the thing. They got him to do the mm-hmm. thing and it was working. And this person was, um, I would, a big, strong person, like, like big, strong person. And I think that's part of it. Like their identity is like, I'm a big person. That's how people see me. That's how I see myself. Like there was so mm-hmm. much more to it than just like, because if you would have said to me, Hey, Scott, here's an injection, take it. You'll lose 25 pounds. By the way, A1C got better. Blood sugars were lower. Like we were having all of the you know, expected benefits from the Ozempic, um, not taking insulin. Like it was really working for them. And, um, I don't know. I just, I didn't know. I didn't, I'm a person who interviews people with diabetes for a living. I didn't know what to say after, after they said that. I I just, I didn't know where to go from there, Mm -hmm. but I'm, but I'm looking at also now talking to you today. I'm kind of thinking of it again, because I'm looking at it from your perspective. Like, Wow, like look at all the work a doctor put into getting 25 pounds off this person, lowering their A1C, lowering their blood sugars, and they then they just said, I'm not gonna do this anymore. Like that must be demoralizing for that person's doctor, I would think. It just makes you wonder like their understanding as well. Like, was this medication sold to them as, hey, we're gonna help you lose weight and get your A1C under control, which maybe the doctor cared more about than the person, or the reason that we're doing this is that we can help you live longer and be healthier in all these other aspects. That's my point. In, yeah. In type two diabetes, that's the goal. Like, yeah, we can make your numbers look pretty, but ultimately I want to treat this. So I protect your brain and your heart and your kidneys and you don't die young and end up on dialysis with only like half a leg left. Yeah. And, and that's, so that's my, exa- I'm standing in the doctor's office and she goes, why are you here? I'm like, don't want to die. That was it. Like, I don't have another explanation. Like, why would I be here? I don't want to have a heart attack. Like, I'm carrying weight in my front. I can Google. That's not good. 
So mm-hmm. like, I want that to go away. So I don't die. Like, I don't care what I look mm-hmm. like. I don't care what people think of me. I don't, I don't, none of that, but I don't give a crap about any of that. Like, I, I just don't want to stand up one day and go, huh, what? Like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not I don't, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I, I think I need to get this weight off. And I've tried 19 different ways and my body doesn't want to do it. So like, I'm tired of what I told her was, I'm tired of doing things that work or don't work or work a little bit. And the outcome's no different. I'm like, tick, tick, like time's ticking away here. Like I'm out of time. Like I, like mm-hmm. we need to, we need to do this right now. And she was cool. She's like, yeah, right on. Let's do it. And I was like, okay, great. So, so is it more about how people see, like I bring this up sometimes, but there are parts of the country where getting type two diabetes, for example, is almost like a, it's like a family tradition. Like, oh, I got the sugars, you know, it's, it's here. Like I expected it to be. And yeah, I think people think it's inevitable. Like my mom had it, my grandma had it. And some of it is genetics that we don't fully understand. So like, yeah, you might not have complete control over it, but if you just see your whole family went through this and if in your family and your culture, you guys really value being together and sharing meals together. And why would you value then doing things to lose weight or to change things that might make you not feel as connected with your family and your culture? Yeah. Like even understanding that I might get it one day, like say I say it's a, that's an inevitability for me. You know, I've seen it through Mm -hmm. my entire family. Change it to, hey, everybody in our family catches fire in their 50s. Do I just then I don't keep water around? And when the fire comes, I don't like douse myself out. I just go, oh, yeah, this happens to everybody. Like such an odd, mm-hmm. an odd decision in that moment to me. Like, like oh, I'm, I'm having this significant health crisis that is going to poorly color the rest of my, like, I don't, like, maybe we should be more clear with people. Most of the causes of death right? Like when you you die Mm -hmm. and they say like, oh, this person died from complications of type 2 diabetes, but it was a heart attack or they died of complications, but it was a stroke or it was like, I think that people need to understand that you don't gracefully die at 96 with type 2 diabetes that you're not doing anything about. Like you're going to have like a major catastrophic incident that's going to end your life. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. no, maybe they don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think people realize that. I mean, I take care of patients that have heart attacks and strokes all the time. And it frequently is news to them that, well, your diabetes with your A1C of nine is one of the big risk factors that led to you having a stroke. Hmm. Yeah. Like that's something that we need to fix. How does that happen though? How does somebody get diagnosed with something and not be told? Like, my mom got cancer yeah. and the doctor sat down with her and said, Bev, you're going to die in four months if we don't do a surgery. He didn't say, oh, tough luck. What do you want to do? <laughs> what, do you, yeah. what are your thoughts on this? Because <laughs> my mom would have been like, I don't want to do anything because that that's, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, And, and it's not, I, I really don't think it's the, I don't think the fault lies on the patient. Like I, there are plenty of things about life that I don't understand, but they don't try mm-hmm. to, they don't try to kill me. So it doesn't matter. But if I walked up blind, if I'd never seen an alligator before and I started walking towards this enclosure, I'd expect someone who knew better to go, hey, uh, don't go in there. That's a killing machine. You know, like, uh, Mm -hmm. I don't know what, I don't know. Like, so there's a disconnect somewhere because it seems to me like you get type two diabetes and the machine writes you off as lost unless you go home and figure it out for yourself. And then 
we love to say, oh, when people do the right things, it all works out great for them. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that, it's on doctors. We diagnose people. And I think sometimes we feel afraid to overwhelm people with so much information. And then it just gets lost where, yeah, you know, my first priority is to like get this under control now. But my next priority, which I totally forget about, is I need to make sure you understand why this is such a priority. Mm -hmm. Like, why do we care so much that your blood sugar is high and that you're not at goal? And Yeah. And then in in fairness. I also think our medical system isn't set up to manage. Like, diabetes needs intensive monitoring. It needs intensive treatment. And it's the long game, right? It's not like you have diabetes now. Next year, you're going to have your heart attack. I mean, you could, but it Mm -hmm. probably is going to be years before you have outcomes. But you need to have an established primary care that's, you know, really invested in you and has the time to, like, help make sure everything is managed well. And our health system is is hard to navigate, hard to get consistent care and not great at teaching people about their illnesses and how they can manage themselves the best. One of my brothers has type two and I've been for years like trying to like educate him slowly. Like I don't want to put him off and everything. And I think he's finally getting it. But, you know, he didn't know. Like, he's like, he mm-hmm. first got it and he was like, okay. And then, like, a year or so later, a doctor, like, tried to scare him. And that worked on him a little bit, but he still didn't have enough information. Now he was just scared. So he was mm-hmm. properly scared that he could die, but didn't know what to do about it. And so I kept saying, like, I think you should try this, like, try this. Like, and he's like, oh, I did. Like, I, you know, and he would for a while. Like, he, he, like, significantly changed his eating habits. He lost some weight. Um, was going in the right direction. And then I don't know what happens, like whatever the way people's brains work, like why mm-hmm. I, I use this as an example. A lot. My father told me when I was a kid, my father told me he started smoking cigarettes when he was like a child, like 11, 10, like 10, 11 years old. Like the first thing my dad smoked was a cattail. Do you know what <laughs> that is from a field? I do. Yeah, yeah. They rolled that up and smoked it. Like, cause they were looking for something to smoke as children. My dad smoked unfiltered cigarettes his whole life and like something called Chesterfield Kings. Like they were like vicious cigarettes. Like if you back in the day, like Paul Mall, like something like those kinds of things and, um, strong, like strong tobacco unfiltered. And my dad would always say like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. He had coughing fits. Like you wouldn't believe and he would smoke mm-hmm. two and three packs of cigarettes a day sometimes. And he'd be like, oh, the doctor says I'm fine. Doctor says they can't even tell I smoke. I, I heard that my whole life. And then my dad died of congestive heart failure. But he told himself yeah. his entire life that this thing that he knew was hurting him, he told himself his entire life it wasn't. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was just, I don't know. It's fascinating, really. Do we all need therapy, Anna? What do you think? <laughs> we do. <laughs> I mean, that, I mean, that also gets into addiction, too, and how things affect your brain, prevent you from making good decisions. Yeah. And and maybe the food and the sugar and all those carbs, like, maybe that's got a lot to do with it. I mean, I, I kind of believe it does, yeah. you know. Oh, for sure. I mean, some of the medications that we use for addiction can also be used for weight loss. It's all like that pleasure center. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, honestly, I just said I'm using Wegovy. For people who don't know, Wegovy is the exact molecule as Ozempic. Like, so Mm -hmm. Ozempic was made for type 2 diabetes because they, people said, oh, people lost weight and their blah, blah, blahs got better, et cetera. That, you know, and it's because they couldn't eat as much. And they, I think it goes right to your hippocampus and tells you you're not hungry. 
which is, mm-hmm. do you know the story about the GLP ones and the Gila monsters? Oh, uh, not that well. Okay. But GLP ones, GLP twos were discovered in the saliva of Gila monsters in the beginning of the eighties by a Canadian mm-hmm. researcher. And that's what this, this, what this drug is. Like, yeah, I think the, the researcher noticed that Gila monsters are like vicious eaters, but once they've eaten they're they don't eat again. So like you could put a goat in front of one, it'll swallow a goat, but then you put another goat in front of it. It's like, no, thank you. I'm full. <laughs> Whereas other animals, like, yeah. A, yeah. And uh, I think he noticed that they were very muscular, didn't carry any fat and seemed to be in control huh. of their hunger. And that's where that all kind of began. So I'm telling you, it, it works. Like I, in the first couple of days of the injection, I told you I had to remind myself to eat. It was worse than that. Yeah. Like, like I got dizzy. That's how I knew I was hungry for the first couple of days because I had no physical signs of hunger whatsoever. And that's that, so weird. Did yeah. you did you like that? I feel like that would be no. Disturbing I, to I me. immediately was like, "Why am I woozy? Like not just woozy, but tired. Like I was like, "Am I shutting yeah. off?" And then I said, "Oh, I have to remember to eat on a schedule." So now mm-hmm. I just get up in the morning. I used to not be a breakfast person. I eat every mm-hmm. I eat every morning now. And um, on purpose, I eat every morning. And then I usually make the podcast in late morning. And then I, as soon as you and I get done, I'm going to go eat something else. Because, and I'm not hungry. I have yeah. no desire to eat whatsoever. But I'm going to go eat something else so, to avoid that. So it took me like three days to figure out how to avoid that. So weird. I, I was raised in a very like clean your plate, clean plate club type of family. Um, and with our son, we've been very intentional about trying not to do that and do the like, listen to your body to try to like develop more healthy eating habits. And it's interesting to like, to yeah. see kind of what the next generation is. I feel like, I mean, I hang out with a lot of other physicians as well who follow kind of similar ideas to me. If uh, the next generation of kids will have similar issues around eating and overeating that I think, especially people that grew up in the seventies, eighties and nineties oh. with culture of fast food have on Easter. I went to um, a family member's house on Easter. There were 10 people there. There was a spiral ham, a pulled pork that was smoked, a couple of different casseroles, mashed potatoes, rolls, two different kinds of rolls. At the end, there was chocolate cake and Rice Krispie treats. And people were drinking the entire time. There was beer and soda and wine and like everything, right? And Mm -hmm. so it came time to eat. And I put my food on my plate and I was like, I wanted to try a little bit of this and a little bit of this. And I, I even recognized as I walked away, this looks like, I don't know. It looks like they gave me a certain size spoon and said I could only fill it once, you know? <laughs> and, and I went and sat down and I thought, I wonder how much more food would be on this plate if I wasn't taking this injection. And I, yeah. I think the honest truth is more. I definitely would have had two of the rolls. Like, and I had one, I had a very small scoop of potatoes and I tried both of the, like, I tried the pork and the ham. I didn't like the ham. And instead of just eating it, to be polite, which is what I would have done, I was like, I'm throwing this mm-hmm. out. And then I had a little bit of the chocolate cake later, and I had a, a, a Rice Krispie treat at the end of the night. And I woke up the next day, and I weighed the same exact amount that I weighed the day before, <laughs> because I was in the last three, because of my theory that I was in the last three days of the shot, right? But I... I know myself, if I would have went there on Easter prior to this, I would have come back. I would have gained weight. I would have been retaining water the next day. And mm-hmm. I, so I don't know what's in the magic, like Gila monster juice, but 
I said to Jenny the other day while we were recording a type two with the state of food and the way we like, oh, by the way, my point about Easter was, is that as I walked away with my food, some, the amount of people said, are you not hungry? When they saw my, <laughs> when they saw my plate was really interesting. Are you not hungry? And I'm like, no, I am. Thank you. Are you sure? Yeah. Like the idea was like more, there was enough food there for 50 people. Yeah. And it's not like no shade to them. Like they just put out a bunch of options and like, it was lovely. It just, I looked over at somebody else's plate while I was eating. They had a little bit of everything on their plate. The plate was full. Like it was, there's Mm -hmm. no way anybody needed that much, that many calories in a whole day. And this was just like dinner. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I said to Jenny, I was like, you know, to your point earlier about like generational stuff. I said, the way this Wegovi seems to work so far, if my experience continues, I'm saying we take a whole generation of people who have children and inject this in them and their kids, <laughs> their kids are going to grow up with a completely different idea of how much food is the right amount of food to eat. Yeah. Like, like really? Cause you just Has it affected your enjoyment of food when you do eat. Interesting. Anna. I am not a food person to begin with in my perfect scenario. I wish that ever eating was like the Jetsons. Like, you know, they would get a pill. Remember the beginning of the Jetsons? (laughs) They got a pill and they'd cut it in half with a knife and fork and eat it and they were done. Yeah. I don't love food, but I also think my stomach would get upset my whole life too. And I wonder how much of that makes you not want to eat really. And that I've addressed before this. So before I tried the Wegovi, I did try other things. And one of the things I did very successfully was I watched Arden... Like Arden was clearly having trouble. And I don't know if you've heard that episode, but we added a um a digestive enzyme to Arden's like meals. And that mm-hmm. and that got her digestion going well. And then we added a magnesium oxide, which got elimination going really well. And we put a probiotic in. She's been doing very well with that cocktail. And I was like, I'm gonna do that. I did that. It changed my like changed my life. Like just taking a digestive enzyme when I eat. I don't have that like Oh, that's not sitting well feeling ever again. Like I don't, you know, and I'm doing, I'm doing the whole thing. So I'm eliminating every day on a schedule, um, eating, you know, I, I used to have to take fiber. I don't have to do that anymore. And so I tried that. And then once I got it rolling, I was like, I wonder if I'll lose weight because I don't eat very much. Like I'm not overeating and it just didn't touch my weight at all. Nothing. Like I felt better and everything was working better, but I did not lose a, like an ounce. So I tried that. That didn't help. By the way, I've now, I've become like a heroin dealer with digestive (laughs) enzymes. Easter, my niece was like, oh, like there's dairy here. I'm not going to feel well later, like all this stuff. And I I just kind of heard her out the corner of my eye. I took these two little like tablets or these capsules and I dropped in her hand. And I was like, take those. I felt like, I'm like, I knew if I was 10 years older, it would have been the creep. I would have been like that old lady, like dropping like pills out of a tissue. (laughs) Take this. Like, <laughs> anyway, um, she's like, really? I'm like, just take them. She was, what are they? I'm like, they're digestive enzymes. They're going to help you digest your meal. And so she popped them in her mouth. She had her food. I don't know what she ate. I didn't pay attention to her. And hours later, she said to me, you know, usually by now my stomach's upset. My stomach's not upset. And I was like, cool. It's great. I said, here's a couple more. Try them for a few days. See what's up. Obviously for Arden, she has type one and your pancreas also helps you digest food and you know, mm-hmm. it stops working. It stops doing other things besides making your your insulin. Mm-hmm. But the way I saw it help Arden, and then when I said it on the podcast, the amount of notes I'm getting from people, like like one one woman was like, "My stomach has hurt every day for thirty years, and I've been okay for a week now because of this." 
just like super excited. Like, I think the food's just, I don't know. Like a lot of what we eat is garbage. It's just, I don't think it, I don't think it belongs inside of you. You know, I think, I think it's kind of amazing that your body does as good of a job with it as it does to be perfectly honest. So, um, yeah. Hey, so anyway, you have type one diabetes should have probably brought that up at some point. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I can ask you all the boring questions about like, how do you do that at the hospital? And you'll be like, Oh, I make sure to stop and get snacks and all the nurses know, like, I, I know those answers already. So, um, I'm very just much interested in, in what type one having it, having gone through 12 years of, of medical school, how has it impacted how you treat people? You know, it sort of evolved with me as I think I learned more about type one because I got it, you know, not too long before I went to medical school um, and just also sort of matured as a person. I remember being a resident, so just out of medical school, still doing training, and we rotate through a diabetic clinic um, at the VA hospital. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was only a few years in. I was mostly working with diet, type 2 diabetics, and I sort of realized I did not want to be an endocrinologist because it was all it was too much to like deal with diabetes like all day long and then also have to manage my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I... I mean, I'm part of the medical system training. I didn't have a great understanding of, of type 2 diabetes at the time and really felt like, well, if you just did all of these things, right, like you could get rid of your diabetes and upset that like, I can't get rid of mine if I can do all of these things. Oh. So definitely now had led me to have more compassion with my patients and understanding of like the frustration of like knowing all of these things about diabetes that we don't talk to our patients about knowing that there's better ways to manage that we can't do or don't do. I'm very selective. I think I've only told two patients in my entire time of practice that I have diabetes as well. I, I like wear a pump and a, a glucose monitor. So like some patients pick up on it when they see it, but twice I've actually shared with them that like, Oh, you know, I was diagnosed with diabetes or I have type one diabetes and kind of share my story with them to help connect. Uh, and I think that has been, helpful in a couple instances, once with a young woman who was about the same age I was, she was 19 when she was diagnosed. um, And that's what got her hospitalized. And she was really struggling, very tearful, very upset about it. Um, Her family only really knew about type two diabetes. Her mom like had pulled me apart and was like away from her. I was like, will you talk to her about losing weight? Because that's what she needs to do. Um, And so I had to talk with her and her mom and be like, that's not the issue right now. Like right now, let's talk about what diabetes is and why you need to take insulin. And this isn't just that you need to lose weight, you know, losing weight with type one diabetes is not going to change the fact that you have this disease. Um, But this is frustrating. It sucks that it's going to change your life. And I get that. Uh, And I think, I mean, that seemed to be somewhat helpful for her. It's also really led me to try to work with my hospital and provide some like collaboration with our diabetic educators just to provide better care uh, for our diabetic patients. Residents know when they work with me that I'm not going to let them get away with like, let's just consult endo to like figure out this, that I feel very strongly that internists need to know what diabetes is and how to manage it. And they need to know how to manage their patient's diabetes. And so that's something that we always talk about. How many people type one, type two combined do you see that have diabetes? A A lot, I would imagine. We see, we see a lot more type two, just because the nature of people that get hospitalized tend to be people that have multiple medical problems and mostly older, but it's not infrequent for us to see type one diabetics hospitalized either. And our hospital is pretty good. We have a whole protocol. If you're like on a pump that you get to stay on your pump, um, we're, our nurses are more familiar with Dexcom. 
which actually came out of COVID. Dexcom donated a bunch of I supplies remember. to hospitals with COVID. Yeah, I remember. Um, mostly, yeah. So our nurses didn't have to go in the room, but now it's been awesome because our nurses know how to like set up uh, Dexcom and we have access to them and we can use it for a lot of our patients and you can use it as education. Um, a lot of our patients have glucose monitors now. And so it's always a good way to kind of introduce those topics to our medical trainees to show them. And I usually actually try to use our patients to educate our residents and our med. I see you have a Libre on, like, how is that working? And like, try to like role model for my medical students and residents that our patients can teach us about their disease and like how they're managing and what their understanding is. Mm. Yeah. I thought when COVID happened and Dexcom was like, we're getting these into hospitals because it was keeping nurses from having to go in and check people's blood sugars, right? They could do it from outside of the Mm -hmm. room. And I was like, well, this is brilliant because it's going to teach a whole generation of medical people about the glory of like continuous glucose monitoring and people are going to wear it and see like, mm-hmm. you know, geez, I have diabetes and like, I didn't know that this impacted me. Like it's such a simple conversation, but like the CEO was on here years ago of Dexcom, Kevin. And he said, I wear a, a continuous glucose monitor, you know, trying the products and making sure I understand, you know, the experience and everything because he doesn't have uh, type one. And he said, I, I remember him telling me like three distinct foods that he's like, I, I'm never going to eat these things again, just for seeing what they did to my blood sugar. Mm-hmm. And you get that, that that's an education, you, yeah. you, you know, like somebody telling you don't eat, like eat well, uh, you, you said it earlier, like, like people say I eat great, but like they think of mashed potatoes as like healthy. They're like, that's a vegetable. Yeah. I'm like, mm, exactly. Yeah, no. <laughs> And so they're like, well, I'm wearing, and let them see one time, let them see their blood sugar go to 160 and sit there for two or three hours after a meal and be like, mm-hmm. oh, I am tired right now and I don't feel well. And, you know, I didn't like, you know, for generations, it was just a joke, right? Like everybody falls asleep after Thanksgiving dinner and people would be like, it's tryptophan. I'm like, I was always like, your <laughs> blood sugar's high. Like, like you, yeah. you eat way too much food and your body is trying desperately to get rid of it right now. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe that maybe that's what education looks like. And I don't see anything mm-hmm. wrong with that. Like whether it be this GLP-1 or someone wearing a glucose monitor I think that's terrific. I think that if that's mm-hmm. what gets it through people's heads, then great. And we just don't do an, we don't do a good enough job of teaching anybody. I, it's a just a human yeah. it's a human problem. Like even like th- this whole thing, whether you're on the side of the patient or you're the doctor, people are just to, at some level are limited in how much they can manage and handle and understand and put into practice and it's just always going to be this way. But some things are just, I don't know, some things just seem so obvious. It's baffling that we can't pull it together as a society, yeah. as a society. And I mean, and to be honest, that, that statement could have been for politics or healthcare or, you know, anything really like, how is it, how is it so obvious to everybody? And yet we just go like, Oh, okay, well, I guess this is all right. <laughs> Yeah, we're not gonna do anything. If we you know. can improve diabetes. We won't have as many people on dialysis. People won't be dying of heart attacks. People won't be having strokes. They won't be losing limbs. They won't be losing their vision. And they won't be spending their life yeah. dealing with this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just a, yeah. a, it's just a, it's a net positive. Like every everywhere, everywhere is positive. And I, I don't, I, it's not, and it's not as simple as you know, eat better or just you know, don't have a potato chip. Like it's not that easy. You know what I mean? It just, 
we pretend it is, and we pretend that anybody who doesn't react to it and do the quote unquote right thing is a lost cause or doesn't care about themselves. And I just don't think that's true at all. I think yeah. it's just it's an easy disease to blame on the patient. Right. If you have bad outcomes, it's because you didn't care enough. Yeah. I am not lying to you. I have not eaten differently in the last two weeks than I ate the two weeks before that. And I've lost eight pounds. So <laughs> who cares why? I honestly don't care why. Like, I'm not embarrassed. Like, I'm not, like, I don't want to die prematurely. I don't want my joints to hurt. I don't want my knees. Like, we, we, we've we gotten to the point where people are overweight and they're saying, like, I'm tired all the time and my knee hurts. I wonder what's wrong. Like, you're carrying too much weight on your frame. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. like, it, it it's, but we look for other reasons. It's fascinating. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you skip over, yeah. like, step one and you go to step two. Oh, you know what it could be? I don't know. What could it be? Oh, it could be this very rare thing where people should. Or how about just like, I I shouldn't, like, I shouldn't be carrying this weight around. Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't know. It's become very uh, confusing to me as time passes. Well, we're better at fixing the like problems that come from the weight or the problems that come from diabetes than we are at fixing the weight and fixing diabetes. Mm. No, for sure. What's easier. Yeah. That we seem to be on top of. No problem. I I mean, even me, like I'm a fairly... I'm like a reasonably intelligent person. I know when I'm doing something I shouldn't be doing. Like I'm not unaware of it, you know? Um, And I mean, what are my eating troubles? I don't eat vegetables. And I've discussed this with Jenny in the type two series. Like I just grew up with people who like came from that clean your plate generation too. And I didn't Mm -hmm. like textures of some foods, mostly vegetables. And then my parents would sit me in front of them till they got ice cold and make me eat them. Mm-hmm. And like I I I I spent evenings of my life sitting in front of green beans, for examples, and I've had them brought back to me for breakfast. I don't know what oh my what lesson my mom was trying to impart in me, but she it was a complete parenting failure. Like I'm sure she was just doing what she thought was right, and I don't I'm not mad at her, but like it was a it was a parenting failure. And now I can't stomach vegetables. Like, I can't bring myself mm-hmm. to do it. And and yet I try some sometimes. I'm like, oh, this is fine. <laughs> like, like, But it would never occur to me to go back and eat it again because it is so far out of my food lexicon at this point that when I'm thinking to eat, I don't think, oh, I did like X, Y, Z last time I had it. I should make this now. Yeah. And it's that same thing that leads you to probably think of green beans and feel nauseous or not want to eat them. That makes you want to finish your plate so you can have dessert afterwards and eat even if you're not hungry. Yeah. No, yeah, we have to keep eating. It was all about like, um, also we were broke and and like growing up. Yeah. So it was like, if somebody bought something, you were like, oh, holy hell, look what's in the house. Like eat it. It's never coming back again. You, you know, like mm-hmm. there was that, there was that kind of like scarcity mentality of like, oh my God, there's cake. There'll never be cake again. Eat all the cake. Because I won't yep. be able to have it again. And anyway, my point is, is that, that that's true. I mean, that's my story. It doesn't mean I should have to have a heart attack. Like, you know, and, yep. and just because somebody else grew up in a way that's got them in a situation, it, it doesn't mean that they lose. Do you know what I mean? Like, if your life's not perfect, right. it, that doesn't mean you don't get to live. So I'm for right. what I'm for whatever helps. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Did why did you want to come on the podcast? It's probably a little late to ask you that now, but we got to all that, right? Like, is there anything we didn't like go over you wanted to? 
No, I mean, that was, I think I forgot which episode it was exactly, but talking about inpatient management of diabetes, I was like, but it's not just that we don't care <laughs> that we're, we have these other motives, um, mm-hmm. or these other thoughts behind it. Like that nice sugar study that I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, wanting to explain some of that and just the kind of being on both sides of it, having diabetes, seeing how diabetes is managed. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I would say that's sort of nice is my colleagues, I work with a group of, I think there's about 60 of us between our MD group and our APPs, which are physician assistants and NPs. They sort of know that if they have diabetes questions or management questions that they can come to me and ask questions and we try to do better help manage better in the hospital knowing that we've failed at it in the past. No, it's I mean it's nice to have like a a person there who might have a deeper understanding and mm-hmm. you know you know you you can go to. And you find them doing it? Like they actually come to you? Yeah, they yeah. do. It's excellent. That's very cool. Yeah. No, I mean it's nice that you know to hear younger doctors talking the way you are. Uh it's actually very exciting. Um it, it's just I don't know my, my experience with my mom and, you know, it's just been a little shaky. Like, you know, you meet some people who are just right on top of it and other people just, you know, don't care. Like I've, I've said on the podcast before the first oncologist that my mom saw was absolutely happy to let my mom die. He was, he was, he actually said to me, I'm not going to kill your mom in surgery. And, and then you, you know, you start hearing about things like doctors have scores and they have to keep their scores up or, you know, like the mm-hmm. hospital and you're like, Oh, okay, great. So you're not going to help my mom in case she dies because then that'll look bad for you. And I was like, yeah. geez, that's crazy. The next doctor is just like, yeah, I'll do it. And now it's two years later and she's still alive. Like it's amazing, you know? Um, and mm-hmm. uh, that's an example of, you know, that's not going to leave me. Like, I'm not going to be able to shake that example. I'm not going to be able to shake the op- the amount of times that when Arden was younger and she went to, you know, a very good children's hospital, like a very good, very popular, very, like, you know, competent children's hospital where we'd go there. And even as a, a small child, Arden would say, why do we come here? <laughs> what are we doing? And I, and I had to tell her, I'm like, well, we're here to get your prescriptions. You know, and the, the hospital's acting like they're doing all this stuff. And I'm just like, look, you're just the guy with the prescription pad at this point. And, you know, it's lovely to see you. Wonderful people. I love visiting with them and everything. It's all really nice. But the amount of time something's been said to me that I was like, oh, I'm that's actionable. I need to remember that. Is And you could argue that's because Arden was doing so well and we had a good grasp of yeah. it and everything. I'm sure other people were getting other direction. But for us, like, it's... You know, there was still a time when Arden was going there and her A1C was eight and it was, you know, in the mid eights and nobody was saying anything that was like, here's how you can fix this. Like, it was just yeah. like, you're doing great. Keep going. It's always how it was, you know? So I don't know. It's just, uh, it's tough. Like it's tough to be sick and it's tough to know that the thing that you're fighting with doesn't go away and that you're going to be with it forever. Like, but I think it's a leap you have to make in your head. You just have to say, this is, this is just part of who, who we are and, um, you know, add it to your, add it to your cycle of things that you think about. And I don't mm-hmm. know, might end up missing a couple of Netflix series this year. Cause you don't have time, but at least you'll be healthy <laughs> anyway. All right. And you'll have all your limbs and organs. 
Good Anna, trade. Anna, I think that's a, a damn good trade. I am also, I apologize. I think I spoke too much today, but um, there's nothing I can do about that. <laughs> I, get, <laughs> right. I get like motivated and then it's hard to shut off. Also, my energy is coming back. I just got my iron infusion recently. <laughs> so nice. I'm jacked back up again. Hey, um, other stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Do you have other stuff? Do you have thyroid or anything else? Oh, do on? I? Yeah. Yeah, I have Hashimoto's as well. Mm -hmm. You take just a T3 supplement or do you take T3, T4? I take just Synthroid. Mm -hmm. And you don't have any trouble? That that works for you? No, no, it's been fine. My thyroid is sort of weird. I've never actually been very symptomatic from it. And my endocrinologist just caught it because one year my TSH went from like, I think just under two to just under four. And she was like, well, technically you're still within the normal range, but we're like doubled. So let's check your antibodies and everything came back like very, very elevated. So I just started Synthroid before I even really had true symptoms. Well, I think that's so great. That's I think that's sort terrific. Of nice. Yeah, that's terrific actually. Yeah. Can I ask you a couple more questions? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when you hear people all the time say everyone, like the whole population is deficient in vitamin D, do you think that's very impactful? Vitamin D is a tricky one. Like my physician perspective is the evidence has gone up and down. Like I feel like it, for a while it was like vitamin D will fix everything. Everyone needs to be on vitamin D. It'll make everyone's life better. Uh, but then when we actually study it and see what outcomes are, it, it probably doesn't make everyone's life better. It's probably a little bit overdone, mm -hmm. but it also is not going to hurt you. What about yeah, um, so anemia and like low ferritin, low iron? Do you see that with people very often? We do. I personally think that that is definitely under-recognized and it has a big effect on how you feel because we normally don't think about it until your hemoglobin, your blood counts are actually dropped, but your ferritin can be low way before that. Yep. Uh, I've had problems with that when I was younger, I did. And then even my son was sort of interesting. He had this whole big workup because he was a, a terrible sleeper, which is common among a lot of kids. But low ferritin levels can be one of the causes in kids because they can get restless leg syndrome. And his pediatrician told us when we like brought him in when we were talking about it, like, well, you know, his hemoglobin's fine, so it's probably fine, but we should check his ferritin. And it was like crazy low. So he was on a lot of supplements for it. And we saw a big improvement with his sleep. So because of my personal experience, I definitely believe that we probably are not as aggressive with checking ferritins and being too reliant on waiting for like the bigger down the stream outcome of low hemoglobins before yeah. we address it. Uh, as a person who it happens to, I can't tell you, like I, it, it would be difficult for me to, to explain how turned off my body and brain becomes when it gets lower mm -hmm. because of the, the insurance system. I am set up in that situation where I'm like, I have to almost turn off so that they'll give it to me again. And we're trying right now to get them to just preemptively do it. Like as we start seeing numbers fall, like, why can't I just have, excuse me, why yeah. can't I just have more now? So I don't get to the part where I'm like fumfering around for well, my words yeah, and feeling yeah. terrible and like exhausted constantly. And I just wondered if that's something, did you see it with people who have other autoimmune issues or is it just kind of across the board? You know, I've seen it across the board, lots of people for lots of different reasons, not always specific to autoimmune. Okay. No, it's interesting. It just really is like I it changed my, it changed my life, like getting a, an iron infusion and bringing my ferritin back up again. Like it really, mm -hmm. like I was in trouble. And, and then hindsight showed me that this was happening to me most of my adult life and I didn't even realize it.
Um, I actually have an episode going up tomorrow or the next day with the hematologist who came on to chat. Uh, I joked with him in the beginning. I was like, this is the only time um, you're going to hear somebody say how excited they are that a hematologist got type 1 diabetes because now I have access to you on my <laughs> podcast. Um, uh, but he came Hi. on, was terrific, and like shared all about it. And I just think it's something people should be more aware of because a lot of doctors, like, I, I, I guess I'm going to ask you this last question. And I'll let you go then. Because you brought it up with your own thyroid. In range. Your labs are in range. Why does that stop many physicians from caring about your symptoms? You know what Mm. I mean? You know what I mean by that? I think because we're so taught to treat to a goal. We give medicine. We check labs. We want to get to a goal. And so it looks like, hey, we got there. And it's so much easier to be like, well, I can see an exact number than to have to sit and listen and to... She's saying it's it's easier to you know target that certain goal than to listen to symptoms and see if this fits for hypothyroidism. I mean it's it's not good, and I don't want to make excuses for that. Um, but it's I think it's just easier to do that. You know, you see a patient, you check their labs, you can call them and be like, "Don't worry about it. I don't have to think about this anymore." Um, for thyroid, though, our our in range goal is like really outdated yeah. based on what we know about when people have symptoms and when of it as well no it's fascinating like i you just i mean over 2.1 you probably need medication and Mm -hmm. and and yet the range goes up to 10 am i right about that um normally no it's for most adults it's five Five. when we think like geriatrics we give a little bit more wiggle room up to 10 Mm -hmm. but most labs will say under five is technically normal yeah so these people who are like dragging themselves they're like a puddle their hair's falling yeah. out. They're gaining weight. They, nothing nothing they do helps anything. And a doctor's like, oh, your TSH is only four. You're in range. And then that's it. And then it, like, yeah. it happened to my wife where we were just like, just give her the medicine. See what happens. It's the reason we were able mm-hmm. to save Arden so early. Because when Arden's TSH went up originally, the hospital said that's in range. And I was like, oh, no, fuck you. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I don't care what you say about range. She gets it immediately. And then still, yeah. Arden is interesting because Arden can't function without T4 and T3. Hmm. Like she needs, she takes 0.25 micrograms of cytomel okay. a day. Yeah. And if she stops taking that for more than about four days, she starts to shut off. It's fast. It's fascinating. Like into a, into a puddle. And yeah. um, there's real, really something else. Like how, how interesting it is that just the T4 alone will not help her. It, it does. It takes away all the other symptoms, but her energy is shot. It's ridiculous. It's interesting. Everyone's so different. Yeah. I think, you know, there's some concerns. I know that some physicians have because cytomel can be uh, abused, especially when we think about young women with like eating disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's, I think in general, this is very cynical, but medicine tends not to believe, especially young women, right, about their symptoms that are more difficult to quantify. And so they are taken less seriously. And thyroid autoimmune diseases are more common in women. Auto, I mean, like thyroid disease are more is more common in women. These symptoms that we describe are that you have from your thyroid disease are are hard to quantify and really make people who don't have the disease understand what it's like. Yeah. And so I think they're just taken less seriously. And so it's harder to get appropriate treatment. Well, my, my wife was dying from it you know, when we were younger and she was told like exercise and lose weight and you'll feel better. 
Yeah. They told her that Have for a sleep log. seven years. Seven years. Yeah, sleep log. Can you sleep yeah. with the sun? So when the sun goes down, close your eyes. And when it comes up, open your eyes. <laughs> oh, thank you. That's it. That's so easy. Should I try a cold plunge too? You son of a bitch. <laughs> and, and so, um, <laughs> so I just um, not that cold plunge can't help you with things. I'm just saying, like it's you know, it's interesting where they'll where they'll go and where they won't go. Yeah, you know, and and I take I take your point about the thing with young women. And by the way, uh, who was on here? Chris Freeman. Did he share this with me while we were recording or afterwards? He said athletes will cut weight with Cytomel. Mm-hmm. And um, that was one of the things I, he might have said that off. Um, anyway, it wasn't Chris. Never mind. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, but I but Arden like for sure like Arden will start gaining weight and she gets really tired like right away yeah. and it, nothing changes about about her intake or anything like her life doesn't change. She just without that T three she I mean we went through so many things. She might have pots that that was one that was fashionable to yell about for a while. Like four I don't know four people got pots and now all of a sudden everybody tired has pots and um, mm-hmm. that that went on for a while. And that does that happen? Does there, is there like a psychosis that goes through doctors? They're like you know what I've been hearing lately. Let's test for this. Oh for sure yeah the popular diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I figured because I, I right away I put a stop to that. I was like, she doesn't have pots. Stop it. Like, I'm like, she has type one and she's got this and the type one's managed. Like, let's focus on the thyroid. And they actually got away from it for a while. So she struggled for like a year and a half to the point where, and I know I've said this on the podcast before, but um, in Arden's um, yearbook from high school, we did like a page like the, with photos of her in her yearbook. I don't know if that's something everybody can do or not. Um, and Arden's page is in the center. It's her, it's a really nice photo of her that we had taken when she was graduating and around her picture in the middle are nine images of her asleep on various hard surfaces in our house. And the, uh, the caption says, if you see our daughter sleeping at college, please wake her up. <laughs> like, like something like that. <laughs> and it's very funny by the way. <laughs> but, uh, but that was so much of her life before we figured mm-hmm. out Cytomil was like, she just power through, come home, pass out. Like, I mean, on the floor in the fetal position, head down, ass up, asleep with a blanket over top of her or passed out forward on a hard countertop sitting in like a, like a bar stool chair, like with her face, just on a piece of stone, just unconscious after school. Like oh it, my gosh. It, yeah, just really, really crazy stuff. So anyway, I don't know what the answer is, but I think the answer is fight for yourself, learn as much as you can, yes. and um, and yep. stick up for yourself. So thank you so much, Anna, for doing this. You really were terrific. And I'm going to have you back sometime where I don't talk as much. <laughs> okay. Hold on one second for me. A huge thanks to Anna for coming on the show today and sharing her story. And I also want to thank U.S. Med, usmed.com slash juicebox, or call 888-721-1514. The podcast was also sponsored today by AG1. Drinkag1.com slash juicebox. Links in the show notes. Links at juiceboxpodcast.com. Last little bit, if you're listening, it doesn't matter where you're listening. If you subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you're listening and whatever app you're listening in, it helps the show immensely. Subscribe and follow and make sure you set your downloads to download the most recent episodes.